Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library, and if you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like videos, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. So yesterday was the last Sunday of the month. Usually Sunday is when I post my videos, however, the kitchen is an ongoing drama. It just keeps being dramatic. And uh, so we're posting Monday this week, which will be the next president finally done with Woodrow Wilson. This week's book of the week is The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made by Patricia O'Toole. The accompanying cocktail is called Moral Turpitude and is one and a half ounces of bourbon, three quarter ounce Amaro, a half ounce of Pont-Imé Vermouth, one teaspoon of Grand Marnier and two dashes of Peychaud's bitters. So let's do this. The Pout uh, Ime Vermouth, I, I specifically went with that name brand because apparently it's more bitter than other vermouths. I don't know about that, but I was like, well, why not? It's not as if I don't have enough alcohol, let's just buy another bottle of booze. So, Thomas Woodrow Wilson was born December 28, 1856 in Staunton, Virginia to Joseph Ruggles Wilson and Jesse Woodrow Wilson. Joseph Wilson was a Presbyterian minister, and Jesse Wilson was the daughter of a Presbyterian divine, which I don't know what that means, but I feel like it has to do with church hierarchy. So Woodrow was kind of raised the son of two religious people, quite religious. He was homeschooled until his youngest sibling was born, but uh, with a specific emphasis on moral education. However, while his parents were both well-educated, book learning did not come easy to Wilson. And there is some speculation, uh, latter day, what, not back in his day, but like later neurologists hypothesized that he may have been dyslexic. He did overcome it quite obviously because he would eventually earn a PhD, but his childhood wasn't easy because uh, his parents were extremely learned, were very bookish, they enjoyed reading, and he didn't learn his alphabet until he was like nine didn't really start reading till he was like 11. His father accused of intellectual laziness, which obviously is not easy when you would idolize your father to have your father accusing you of such. Uh, his father made him rewrite essay after essay and verbally defend his points, which would actually work in his favor later when he joined, you know, wanted to join the political class. And in college, you know, he got very good at, at speaking his mind and defending that. I say one and a half ounces of wild turkey. Well, it's supposed to be wild turkey. I just went with the bourbon I had on hand for this one. That one I was like, oh, I'm not going to be too chuffed about it. One and a half ounces. La di da. Now, in 1875, Wilson, who was called Tommy growing up, headed for Princeton, where he spent literally decades with brief intermissions outside of this academic world. By June 1879, Wilson was in love. The object of his affection was his cousin, Hattie Woodrow. Accordingly, he began calling himself Woodrow, although he said it was to honor his mother's family, not trying to woo the young lady and kind of draw that deeper connection between them. Look, my name's Woodrow, your name's Woodrow, let's hang out. She rejected his suit because they were first cousins. And she's like, yeah, cuz that's, that's not gonna fly for me. We're cousins, this isn't gonna happen. And that basically crushed him. But, uh, of course, by that point, he couldn't very well say, well, I changed my name for you. So he just kind of stuck with Woodrow the rest of his life. And it, obviously, and maybe it was to honor his mother's family. We don't know for sure. It's kind of 
just speculation that it was because the timing was very suspicious. He changed his name right around the time he started wooing his cousin. So that was just kind of struck him as odd. At 26, he did move out of the family, or 25, excuse me, he moved out of the family home, became a lawyer, but he found lawyering to be deathly dull and kind of bored, <laughs> boring. He grew bored with his profession quite rapidly. Uh, the problem he had is that he saw lawyering as a good jumping off point to politics. Uh, and he really wanted to join that political class, but he was so bored with lawyering, he just kind of gave up. He's like, okay, well, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, instead, he went to a newly formed PhD program at the Johns Hopkins University. And that wasn't entirely a shot in the dark. His uncle, James Woodrow, recommended that he might want to seek an academic career and, and maybe publishing, and that entirely appealed to Wilson. Three quarter ounce. By the end of 1883, life was starting to look up for Wilson. He had accepted, he was accepted to Johns Hopkins and he was in love again, this time with a charming young lady named Ellen Louise Axon. Now, Axon was not at first sure that Wilson was the love of her life and she was in kind of this rough spot when they met because her mother had just died and her father was not handling it well. Uh, but Wilson convinced her that he would not be happy in his studies unless she agreed to marry him and that he would help her with her father. Ellen agreed, the couple were engaged, and then Wilson left for his studies in Baltimore. Now he spent his time in Baltimore first kind of pining away for Ellen. He wrote her very long letters, but he also found his footing for the first time in his adult life using his oratorical skills, which had been honed by his father all those years ago, to become a lecturer. Uh, kind of did a lecture circuit for a while. It wasn't strictly at Johns Hopkins, although he lectured there too. However, he genuinely hated studying and cramming for tests, which he complained about to Ellen in his letters home. But his oratory, again, became quite useful, including his lawyering skills, even though he was a shit lawyer, because he was able to talk the university into letting him uh, write a book in lieu of studies. That's actually quite skillful that he was able to do that. He must have had some silver tongue because he, he got a lot away with a lot of shit that I read this and I was like, what? Would never happen to me. I'm just, I guess I'm just not that silver tongued, I guess. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, so he, he wrote a book, uh, wrote and published a book called Congressional Government in 1885. And he was quite the Anglophile. He thought that the Founding Fathers may have screwed some things up by leaving things as open as they did. And uh, yeah, he's, he had some opinions on the Founding Fathers. And especially he hated that the Senators were not direct elected, even though that was literally part of the genius of it. All those unincorporated parts of the state are no longer covered. I say a teaspoon a teaspoon I love these cups they actually have teaspoon markings on here ultimately he was able to use congressional government as his thesis paper for his PhD and although Johns Hopkins refused to let him off the hook when it came to the required testing he, he tried to get out of it. he's like well I already wrote this book and it's doing well and I've been on the lecture circuit can we just call that good and I get my PhD and they're like we will Accept your book as your thesis, but you still have to take the test. So he studied, he crammed, he got, and he passed. He, he did get his PhD from Johns Hopkins in June of 1886. The year before that, he and Ellen had married on June 24th, so 1885, and the couple ultimately had three daughters, Margaret, Jesse, and Eleanor, a.k.a. Nell. Nell was his special favorite. And as soon as he received his PhD, Wilson accepted a position teaching at Bryn Mawr, and he taught there for two years. However... He did not, at heart, approve of higher educated women, despite having three daughters of his own, and heartily disliked having a woman as a supervisor. 
which Ellen actually knew. She she made something like comments to the effect of, "Are you going to be happy with a woman as your boss?" And he's like, "Oh well, I got kids. We got you know, I got to feed the family. So let's do this." Which I mean, kudos to him. When the position at Wesleyan University was offered to him in 1888 with a significant pay raise of $1,000, that's a lot of money back in the 1880s, he left at the chance and the family moved to Connecticut. Uh, His stint at Wesleyan was just as brief as his time at Bryn Mawr, and in 1890 he and the family moved again, this time back to New Jersey, where Wilson was hired to teach history and politics at Princeton, which was where his heart lay the entire time. And Wilson would stay at Princeton until he finally made the leap to politics, which he always desired. I have to stir this up. Now, the cocktail actually says to stir it in a cocktail shaker and then strain it over a a large ice cube. I just stirred it in the cup I'm going to be drinking it from with my white trash straw. And I might actually just go full on white trash and drink from my blue soda cup with my green sippy straw for this cocktail. Oh, I was supposed to garnish with a twist of lemon peel. Clearly I'm not bothering with that because I have no kitchen. So I'm not doing garnishes. I'm just gonna, I don't know, man. Oh, that smells bitter. I don't know. There's a lot of bitters in this. And not the Peychaud's, but the, the Punta May is bitter. The Amer is bitter. And I've got the two shots, of, or the two dashes of bitters. I'll try this in just a minute. I have to gird the loins for this one. Now, in the 1890s, Wilson experienced basically the beginnings of arterial disease, including what is likely a couple of small strokes. Now, again, this is diagnosed decades after the fact by, by medical doctors reading through transcriptions of his medical history. Uh, but it's a fairly safe guess that this was an arterial stroke, that, or arterial disease led to these strokes. He was left temporarily paralyzed and partially blind. None of this impacted Wilson's ego, and even though he was the highest paid staff member at Princeton, he could not get them to match higher offers he was receiving from other universities, which was kind of an interesting ploy for Wilson to make because he truly didn't want to leave Princeton. I don't think he had any intention of leaving Princeton. He just wanted more money from them, which, I mean, who doesn't want more money? I get that. Um, Lucky for him, on June 9, 1902, Princeton offered him a new position, that of president of the university. Now, at first, the changes that he wanted to make were praised by the alumni and the board of trustees. However, ultimately, he came to uh, butt heads with both groups because he wanted to make some big changes, and they were like, no, no, we want to leave that as is. So what he he wanted to do is he wanted to do away with the eating clubs, which are basically just social clubs for the higher classmen, and wanted to force the students into kind of a more egalitarian mindset by way of having them move into quads housing where they would all eat in their own residence halls together. This idea was wildly unpopular by the alumni associations. These motions of his were roundly defeated, and he found himself less enchanted with Princeton. Um, And he lost friends over this, and this is kind of a big indicator of his character and personality. He lost friends because he stopped speaking to people who disagreed with him not because they were like, oh, we can't be friends over this. He's the one who determined, well, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. We can't be friends anymore. And that was kind of a mindset that he had all his life. He was kind of a petty, small-minded dude for that. All right, let's try this. Oh, oh my God. Oh, I don't have water up here. Do I have any tea left? Yes, I do. Oh my God, that's vile. Oh, I'll be drinking the rest of my cold tea for this cocktail or for this uh, this review. That's that's vile. Oh, it's well named, well named. Oh, 
Okay, so he finds himself less enchanted with Princeton, and this left him open to accepting a nomination for governor of New Jersey in 1910, which position he handily won and was sworn in on January 17, 1911. And once he'd made that leap to politics, Wilson began immediately looking for national recognition, going on a national speaking tour. And he was gone so long uh, that uh, for at least, he lost at least one month's salary. The state of New Jersey gave his salary to the lieutenant governor of the state because that's who was actually doing the job because he was gone that long. They're like, we, we didn't vote you in to go on a national speaking tour. You're supposed to be here running our state, not campaigning out in Oregon. Now, one of Wilson's more interesting character traits was his ability to talk people into giving him money. He probably would have cleaned house as a, uh, well, minister, honestly. Like, he would be giving Joel Austin a run for his money, I think. Um, or, I mean, people just seem to give him money. And I, I, I'm not sure if he actually talked them into it or if they just he just somehow managed to make them feel that it was the right thing to do. But the lieutenant governor gave him the salary anyways. So the state of New Jersey paid the lieutenant governor. The lieutenant governor was like, here, Governor Wilson, this is your money rightfully, even though you weren't here doing the job that I was doing in your behalf, go ahead and take the money. Not sure how he talked that into it. Um, the salary was like $800, which was about $24,000 in today's currency. I don't know too many people who would just go around giving me $24,000. No matter how much I was like, it's the right thing to do. I just don't see it happening. Well, that's a recurring theme in Wilson's life. And that's just like one instance. There were many repetitions of this theme in the book. Like when he retired, he actually had enough money for his own retirement and to upkeep Edith, who was a second wife, until for basically the rest of, definitely the rest of his life, most likely the rest of hers. Despite that, people still donated several thousand dollars into, to buying him a house in Washington, D.C., Again, a skill I wish I had. Another repeating theme throughout the book is Wilson's belief that he was always right. Go back to those eating clubs where he, you know, walked away from friendships, like decades-long friendships, because he did a disagreement over his way of running things. Contrast that with people, with some of the presidents we read about during the Civil War who remained friends with people who were on the other side of the damn war. And he just seems petty and shallow and small-minded. Anybody who disagreed with him was wrong in his world. And there was no discussion or debate allowed. That's another repeating theme that Wilson disliked pushback in any form. This becomes horrifying when he's elected president and sworn in on March 4th, 1913. So he went from governor of, for a two-year stint to president in 1913, surrounded himself personally with sycophants, and the members of his cabinet were not allowed to disagree with him on anything. The one member of his cabinet who did disagree was Secretary of State William J Brian Jennings, who eventually he resigned over the disagreement, not Je Jennings did. Um, the, the disagreement was over the war in Europe. He still wanted everybody to stay out of the war and Wilson kept making noises like they were going to get into the war. Jennings was succeeded by Robert Lansing who found the job profoundly frustrating as Wilson would not let him actually do the job for which he was you know, hired. Wilson's preferred pick for the position of Secretary of State was Colonel Edward Mandel House However, House preferred to work off book, if you will, which uh, not quite behind the scenes, and he was certainly getting, I think he was getting paid for his efforts, but he did not want the restrictions that would come with being an official envoy of the United States. He wanted the flexibility to make backroom deals, if you will. Now, Wilson, when he was in the White House, had three close confidants. Colonel House was one of them, and they remained close until the completion of the Treaty of Versailles, and I'm pretty sure I circled back to that in this review. 
Next was his chief of staff, Joseph Patrick Tumulty. They remained close until the end of Wilson's life when Edith Wilson, the second wife, determined not to have him around and basically banned him from the residence. The third was Admiral Carey T. Grayson, who was Wilson's personal physician, as well as being a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy. Now, Wilson often gets credit slash blame for the passage of the 16th Amendment. However, as we learned in July when we was reading the book on uh, William Howard Taft, Taft is the one who actually signed the 16th Amendment into law. But Wilson made the most of the law by creating the Federal Reserve Act and pushing Congress to make use of their newfound power to tax the income of the average American worker. Thanks a lot, dickhead. Uh, Wilson also disliked senators who were appointed by the state. I mentioned that earlier, rather than elected directly by the people. So he was fine with signing the 17th Amendment into law, which allowed for the direct election of senators by the people. Colossal mistake. I feel like I covered that last month. I think I covered that when I was doing the U.S. Constitution. But uh, the, the example being that right now, if, if senators were being elected by the legislatures of the individual states, we would probably have two Republican senators for the state of Nevada right now. That's not, that, that would probably be a good thing. It would help to restore a little bit of balance to everything going on in D.C. right now. Um, not just for the state of Nevada, but I mean, that would be like, you know, nationwide. The uh, smaller counties that don't have the population base would still have representation in the individual state houses and thus be in a position to appoint somebody to represent those smaller demographics. That's why it was designed that way. Thank you very much for overturning that, dickhead. Now, a significant chunk of the book was, quite obviously, dedicated to World War I, which I don't want to rehash because that was covered quite thoroughly in Wilson's War back in August. But some points that stuck out in this book are that Wilson was quite unlikable. I mean, that's my take on it. The book was actually quite difficult to read, not because it wasn't well written, but because to me the subject of the book is so thoroughly unlikable. There's nothing relatable about him. He comes across as this kind of egotistical snot. Um, he didn't like pushback on any of his grand ideas. Anybody trying to inject a voice of reason or a voice of supposition, he hated. He surrounded himself with sycophants, yes men only, and women. Nothing wrong with surrounding yourself with women, except that he didn't seem to do so because he necessarily liked their company. He did so because he seemed to think they were intellectually inferior and would look up to him as the smartest man in the room. Incidentally, this is not just my opinion. I'll, I suppose I could be misreading between the lines, but here's this anecdote from the book. Wilson's first wife, uh, Ellen Wilson died on August 6, 1914, possibly of Wright's disease, which is a kidney disease, also claimed President Chester Arthur. Wilson was completely heartbroken. However, he was not a man who did well without a spouse and married his second wife, Edith, on December 18, 1915. Now, one of his long-term friends was a lady named Mary Allen Holbert, later Peck. They were just friends, maintained a long-term correspondence. There were rumors of an affair, but it does appear they were only rumors, as Wilson was, as near as can be established historically, a devoted husband to each of his wives in turn. So that's very commendable, no problems there. But after Ellen's death, and after he had married Edith, Holbert was asked one time why she and Wilson never married, because it was well known they were good friends, there were the rumors of the affair. And this is a telling comment, quote, after his death, she, meaning Peck, offered a strikingly different explanation for the marriage that did not materialize. He and she were fundamentally incompatible, she wrote in Liberty Magazine. He was the sort of man who needed a, quote, doormat wife, end quote, and his habit of correcting grammatical lapses and other small faults was, quote, 
warranted to drive certain temperaments to the verge of consideration of brutal murder, end quote. Basically, she was too smart to be married to him because he drove her nuts because he was a condescending prick is what I got out of that statement. And it seems even in his day, Wilson was known to surround himself with the weak-willed and the sycophants. Uh, these tendencies did not endear him to the other world leaders during the peace talks in Europe. One rather gets the sense that his moralizing and proselytizing annoyed David Lloyd George, George's Clemenceau, and Vittorio Orlando during their backrooms talks that cut out Wilson's point of open and frank discussion. You know, the one that he made such a big deal about in his 14 points, it ended up being just the four of them, which was covered in Wilson's War, so I'm not going to go into that. But Clemenceau most assuredly believed that Messiah Wilson had a Messiah complex because at one point Clemenceau made a, made a statement, quote, talk with Wilson. How can I talk to a fellow who thinks himself the first man in 2000 years to know anything about peace on earth? End quote. Yeah. He's an arrogant, condescending prick. Wilson was so tied to his own belief that he was right in everything that when Colonel House made friends with on his own with some of the delegates in France, putting forth some of his own ideas on what peace in Europe might look like, Wilson became incensed. And after Wilson left Versailles, when the treaty was signed, he never spoke to House again. This had been one of his closest confidants for six years, seven years. Yeah. After arriving back in the United States July 8, 1919, Wilson presented the Treaty of Versailles to the Senate to ratify on July 10, 1919. Wilson then set himself on a speaking tour of the United States, trying to drum up popular support among the people for the treaty. This was, politically, the exact wrong thing to do. The people don't approve the treaties. The Senate does. And Wilson should have been in Washington, making himself available to the senators to answer questions and forming his own political conditions to see that the treaty was accepted. Instead, Wilson spent the rest of his good health, what little he had of it, on a gargantuan speaking tour, which resulted in a near-fatal stroke that completely paralyzed him on the left side, especially his left leg, and left him virtually blind and completely unable to do his job for the remainder of the time in White House. Not that that stopped him. The stroke occurred on October 2nd, 1919. Edith immediately called the White House usher, Ike Hoover, and Dr. Grayson, and the most infamous political cover-up of the 20th century began. Between Grayson and Edith, Wilson was kept as the president until Harding was sworn in on March 4, 1921. So they kept the fiction of Wilson's ability going for one year, five months, and two days. They managed to fake that he was perfectly healthy and able to do his job. What should have happened is that Grayson, upon seeing that Wilson was near death's door he'd had a major stroke at this point left him paralyzed on the left side of his body he couldn't move his left side he couldn't sit upright on his own grayson should have informed the cabinet immediately of the president's ill health and his inability to perform the cabinet should then have informed vice president and congress who would have sworn in vice president thomas r marshall to be president under article 2 section 1 of the Constitution, which reads, in case of the removal of the president of office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president. And the Congress may, by law, provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of president and vice president. So, that's what should have happened. Marshall should have been in charge from October 2nd, 1919. Instead, the only time he was in charge was when Wilson was in Paris for the peace talks. 
Wilson delegated that the task of signing laws basically while he was away. And while I don't think it's specifically covered in the book, I don't remember reading it in there, it would not in the least bit surprise me if there was much cabling going on between France and the United States as Marshall made sure that Wilson was okay with him signing whatever laws passed in his absence. But Grayson and Edith decided on their own that the ratification of the Treaty of Versailles was more important than anything to Wilson, propping him up in the sham of health, hoping that the Senate would pass the treaty. They did not. Wilson did slowly improve, not enough to carry out the functions of the office of the president, but enough to be outraged that the Senate declined to pass the treaty. Uh, this, incidentally, meant that the United States was still legally at war with Germany. At least we were until the Senate unilaterally said, no, we're done with the war. War's over. <laughs> I mean, this outraged Wilson even more. He only wanted peace that he approved of. It's kind of why I picked this week's cocktail, Moral Turpitude. Turpitude means depravity and wickedness. Wanting war to continue because only his peace was okay is depraved. This is disgusting. I don't care how sure he was of his moral correctness. Insisting that the treaty be passed only on his terms is a revolting act of ego and moral depravity. If the cocktail were any better, I would have a sip right now as a salute and toast and a fuck you to that man. Um... Wilson was not impressed with the 1920 presidential offerings and disliked Warren G. Harding, uh, who won in 1920, and he really wished they would have elected a solid Democrat, the best choice for the job, which of course was Woodrow Wilson, even though he couldn't even stand. Uh, Wilson actually planned to run again in 1924. He was trying to, he was kind of making noises like he was doing that, even though Grayson, Dr. Grayson was like, no, no, you're really not good to do that. Except that Wilson died at home on February 3rd, 1924, sparing the country that ghastly sideshow. Uh, the author covered several points about Wilson, and I can't tell if she was trying to buy goodwill for him based on his high ideals or if she actually believed this, but she tried to argue that he was not racist because his parents' Presbyterianism led them to believe that slavery was wrong. And uh, here's the thing. Acknowledging slavery is wrong is not the same thing as not being a racist. Wilson delegated out chunks of the patronage question to solid Southern Democrats who segregated the formerly unsegregated postal service and civil service. When confronted about this by black leaders, Wilson shrugged it off and tried to argue that it really was for the best because racism and segregation is always for the best. The people he surrounded himself were unquestionably racist, so it's disingenuous to say that he was not. Additionally, during the Paris peace talks, he turned his back on China flat out in favor of Japan. China at that time was on its way towards democracy, and Wilson was actually the first uh, world leader to recognize China's burgeoning democracy as a standalone country, as a new republic. Um, because the, the, you know, the, red, the uh, Chinese imperial family had fallen, the republic was on the rise, and Wilson acknowledged that. And uh, China was, was hurt. Like, their representative was seriously hurt that Wilson turned the, his back on China uh, in favor of the very clear imperialism of Japan. And it actually made my heart hurt reading about this and about Ambassador Ku's reaction. It's K-O-O. -O. At least that's how it's spelled in the book. Who basically called Wilson on his bullshit and said, what is this? You said we were a republic and now you're not even going to support us in getting our own land back? What about your 14 points you were vaunting so much? And Wilson had nothing to say to that because he was a racist piece of garbage. 
And coup refused to sign the Treaty of Versailles or the League of Nations bullshit that was promised therein, which, of course, ultimately led to the rise of Mao and communism. So well done there. Um, Wilson did not like educated women. I mean, his time at Bryn Mawr and his tolerance for women's suffrage was entirely politically motivated. He didn't voice any opinion on it until after the states had ratified the 19th Amendment, which granted women the vote. Then he signed it because it had passed nationwide. He, he was getting over the stroke when it passed, and when he signed it on August 26, 1920. But he did sign that legislation. He was not by any metric a civil libertarian, and the measures he authorized during World War I were draconian. Uh, the, the measures cracking down on the war protesters launched the career of one J. Edgar Hoover. And I feel like the FBI just got explained in everything when I read that one, like everything about them. Other World War I measures saw the political rise of Herbert Hoover, who oversaw the agriculture during the war, convincing American people to give up foodstuffs so that they could be sent overseas to the Allies. And note, uh, Hoover was not the Secretary of Agriculture during this time. That would have been one Edwin T. Meredith. So he basically tagged in outside players to do this for him. Uh, he nationalized the railroads during the war. His Secretary of Treasury and son-in-law, William McAdoo, oversaw a massive sale of war bonds, which was entirely designed to fund the war in Europe. The propaganda machine convinced people to turn on their neighbors and report them for not supporting the war. His Espionage Act has seen him rightly decried, even 100 years later, as someone who was not a fan of the Constitution and as just a horrible human being. He also tries to spin it as the work of Wilson's flunkies, not the man himself, but he was the president. He assigned those flunkies, and he could and should have stopped these things at any time, but he never did. He's like, and given that he didn't like people telling him no to anything, and she made that point very clear. He didn't like pushback. He didn't like anybody disagreeing with him. That tells me that he, they were given their marching orders, and they didn't. One of his other charming traits was repeated denunciations of anyone who didn't support the war, and hence him, because he supported the war, as un-American. The author tries to sell that he was a peaceful man or only wanted peace, except that as soon as he won his second term, he started angling to explain why we should go to war after all. And understand, there were some pretty, actually some fairly strong arguments for going to war, believe it or not. Um, Germans, Germany's continued aggression on uh, open waters. Why am I getting this? I don't want that. It certainly makes the argument that war maybe was inevitable. Maybe. But any of the steps he could have done to avoid the war, he never took. Steps like warning Americans to stay off of boats of the belligerents. All right. It's not like America didn't have passenger ships. We did. All right. He could have said, sail at your own risk. If you're going to be on an English ship... England's at war with Germany. Germany's got all these U-boats. You, you could end up at the bottom of the ocean if you sail on that English ship. He never did that. He never put out that warning to the American people, which means on some level he was angling for it all along. Um, he never did anything to ensure that Germany wouldn't attack American ships. And Germany never actually did attack American ships. Americans happened to be on British ships when the British ships were sunk. That doesn't necessarily mean that war is inevitable. I take it back. War was not inevitable with Germany. 
Wilson was just a shit leader who didn't like being told no. He had things he wanted to do. He wanted to create the League of Nations. And I frankly think it's quite fitting that the Senate refused to join because he was such an egotistical prick. Uh, now, at the end of the book, in the epilogue, she talks about how presidents in the last half of the 20th century embraced Wilsonian ideals and beliefs with the only break being President Bush in the post-9-11 world and his belief that if you're not with us, you're against us policies as being non-Wilsonian. Except that's a proven lie because Wilson pioneered that turn of phrase with his denunciation of anybody who pushed to stay out of the war. And that point was stressed many times. So President Bush's, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us, was entirely Wilsonian. All of the high ideals that Wilson put forth in his 14-point speech was rapidly abandoned by him once he was at the big boys' table in Europe. The author claims the Europeans did not much like Americans. I, I actually think they liked Americans just fine. I think they disliked Wilson, who was so thoroughly unlikable that I am placing him at the bottom of my personal presidential rankings. And that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe. I will see you guys next Sunday. This Sunday. Should be this Sunday. And this week's book isn't that long, so I should be available this Sunday.